Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Here is CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger. Am I seeing a little good economic news here? I mean, unemployment way down, growth like 2.9%. What's going on? Oh, my God. What if things were better than expected? Wouldn't that be unbelievable? Yeah. Um, well, data have been pretty good. Um, we did get that stellar jobs report out on Friday. 517,000 jobs created, uh, way more than even the upper range of what analysts had expected. And I have to say, that was a shocker and a good a good shocker, right? And as you mentioned, growth did accelerate in the fourth quarter of last year, though, listen, last year was not a great year for growth. And it does look like, I'm just going to temper this a little bit, that even with good growth in the fourth quarter, spending by consumers and businesses seems to be trailing off a little bit. And we are still, as you hear in your neck of the woods, getting a lot of announcements of layoffs from especially technology, in media, and in some financial services. Um, So I think that we should temper our expectations about what's going to happen now, um, because a lot of the data that we're talking about looks backwards, right? So January was a good month for job creation, but January also saw the highest number of announced layoffs since the terrible September 2020 and like that basically the the entire COVID era where we had lots of layoffs. So I think we should just be a little careful before we get too excited that smooth sailing, soft landing. Which brings us to your personal layoff protection plan. I didn't know that you could actually negotiate your layoff. You know, it's amazing to me that um, I can be such a buzzkill that I could bring I could somehow make good news and bring it down. I'm sorry to do that. Uh, The reason I do that, by the way, is that I think it's rather important for us to remember that if you were to get laid off, it's it's quite emotional and you're not in your right mind when that happens. So it's kind of like estate planning, like you want to do it when you feel good. You don't want to do it after you've gotten this horrible diagnosis. So I think that um, what we should really think about is as you look at your job and your situation, so much of our financial security is tied to our employment, not just your weekly income, but all the other aspects of your financial life. So the first thing I would do if I have a job and I'm lucky enough to have a job is now is a great time to kind of create this plan and find out like, hey, what's the severance policy at my company? Hey, what would happen if I lost my health insurance? Could I go on my partner's health insurance? Would I get my own health insurance? Would I extend it with COBRA? It could be expensive. Would I go to healthcare.gov? All of these things are good questions to begin the process of saying, how would I prepare if the bottom fell out on my job? So do most people know that they could actually uh, bargain with their employer for severance? No. It's fascinating to me because I I know this because of personal um, inquiries to my radio show and my podcast, Jill on Money. People will call the the show and say, uh, you know, it's shocking. Uh, I I got I got laid off, or they told me this, and I listened to what you said because I always say, don't sign on the dotted line. You never know. You can ask for more, and uh, if you ask for more, a shocking thing could happen. They might give it to you. Why? What, so, what would motivate them to do that if they're they're part 
parting ways with you anyway. Well, I mean, a lot of people find that um, if you don't ask, you don't get, uh, a la Mrs. Schlesinger, also known as my mother. <laughs> um, and, you know, some some of these companies, um, maybe they'll say, like, I know a case where somebody said, well, you know, your standard severance, I've been here for 10 years, and they say, okay, we'll give you a week for every year you were with us. Mm-hmm. And this woman just said, well, you know, is there any, could you do two weeks? And they came back and they said, yeah, we we could. Now, it could be that this person was in a protected class, like a woman over a certain age. It could be somebody who just asked and then gets. And it could be that you get a, a, a maybe a, a company that just doesn't want to make a lot of waves. So I think it's worth asking. You never know. People, especially who, if you've had a long tenure at an organization, you might have a nice ability to, you know, at least ask the question and do so with, a, you know, not being adversarial in the moment. I mean, there are people who do get adversarial. I wouldn't. Well, that's the other thing you you recommend. Don't burn your bridges even if you're leaving, which I think is very good advice. Yeah, I mean... I've done dumb things in my life about around this. I really have. I, I have done the the dumb thing that I tell people not to do. I use me as a cautionary tale because there are times where you want to just lay into somebody like, you know, let me tell you about this horrible company. It's just not worth it. You're really not going to be in a better place. And to be honest with you, you might be in a worse place. And you never know when you could run into somebody in your career again. You know, it was uh, it. it it's very telling to me that sometimes people will say, you know, I really gave this guy uh, or this gal a piece of my mind. And I come back and I say, well, what, what if that person is at the next company you work at? What if that person has the ability to hire you or not hire you? What if this person wants to make a call on your behalf? You never know. And, you know, people do amazing things in that moment where you're so shocked about information. I would just be really cautious. This uh, is apropos of nothing. But as you know, I think it would be a really bad idea if if the Republicans uh, uh, don't expand the IRS and, you know, give them the extra agents they need. The um, and, and the whole discussion was about audits, right? This is going to mean more middle class audits. I ran across the statistic. The most likely taxpayer to get audited now is a single black man with dependents who claims the earned income tax credit. It's ridiculous. They get a, a, a 7% percent chance of getting audited and so we're talking basically about really poor people which yeah. doesn't make sense to me does not make sense to me either i mean it could be that the audit system is usually triggered with an algorithm so um what they probably have done is at the irs they need some people to help them reprogram the algorithm remember algorithms only as good as the people who create them and maybe this system is really stacked against the poorest and most vulnerable people in society which is a terrible thing. And I agree with you. Not a good look for the United States to be saying, we, yeah, well, we, we audit the people who are the worst off, not the ones who are the best off. Terrible, terrible information there. So uh, anyway, you can negotiate your severance. Don't burn any bridges. And let's hire some IRS agents who can fix things. All right. I'm voting for you. <laughs> CBS business analyst, Jill Schlesinger. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Some hospitals are worried that their use of anesthesia is contributing to global warming. To get some perspective on this, let's page the doctor. Paging 
Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. When I read this, I had trouble believing this was a real story, but uh, I guess it is. So as uh, someone who uses anesthesia on patients uh, on a regular basis, what exactly is its contribution to global warming? Turns out it's something that's been being discussed for about the past four or five years, which I guess sort of coincides with, you know, the increased discussion about reducing carbon emissions. But when we give anesthesia, there's sort of three different ways primarily that it's given. There can be local anesthesia, which blocks the pain signals in the skin and you're not asleep or sedated or any other such thing. You can give it intravenously, which can sedate you and or knock you out completely, or you can receive a, a gas, an inhaled gas. It's the inhaled gas anesthesia that's the focus of this discussion about reducing carbon emissions. Now, typically when somebody gets anesthesia for surgery, they actually get a combination of intravenous medication as well as inhaling gas. And it's a very safe and well-proven way of performing anesthesia. But I guess some scientists and researchers and whatnot started looking at it, and they said that the gases that are used for anesthesia, if they were completely eliminated worldwide, would reduce the total carbon emissions by 0.1%. There's 50 million surgeries a year performed in the United States. That's a lot of surgery. And not all of them require general anesthesia with inhaled gas, but a large number of them do. At least half of them do and possibly more. You know, it seems to me that the focus should be about making sure we're doing what's right for the patient rather than worrying about, you know, gas emissions into the environment. And I'm all for protecting the environment. But I think that it can be taken too far. And this sort of concerns me. I found a a news article from the New England area, and it was talking about Massachusetts General Hospital, where they've made a commitment to reduce their carbon emissions by uh, 2050 to essentially being uh, net zero. But they asked a uh, climate scientist at Harvard, and Mass General is part of the Harvard system, what his thoughts were about this. Quote, if I was on the operating table, I'd want my anesthesiologist to worry only about my health and safety, and frankly, disregard any concerns about greenhouse gas emissions, unquote. This is a climate scientist at Harvard University who's basically saying that, look, there's a lot of different ways that doctors and nurses could have more impact on climate change than actually just worrying about which gas they choose or how much they use during these different procedures. I can tell you that as a surgeon, how well I perform in the operating room, how well I do the operation matters, but it also matters to the outcome as to how well the anesthesiologist manages the patient throughout the procedure. Uh, So it's the combination of the two. It's just not me operating in a vacuum. You know, I don't know that as a surgeon, I want my anesthesiologist focused on, you know, things other than what's best for the patient in that moment. The one thing I found shocking in the article, well, there's a couple of things. First of all, that these these uh, gases used as anesthetics are much more potent than just plain old CO2. But number two, one of the hospitals said that I believe they couldn't account for 90% of the nitrous oxide that they ordered for their system. 
I mean, that could be. So what are you going to do? You're going to not have nitrous oxide in the in the hospitals anymore. I mean, a lot of times nitrous oxide is actually part of the central gas system is pumped into each of the individual operating rooms and even in some cases into the intensive care units, depending on how they use the intensive care unit. So, you know, it's an important anesthetic gas. And frankly, it's a very, very, very safe anesthetic gas. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I don't know if you would ask most patients who are really concerned about the environment, if that's where they want to look yeah. to cut carbon emissions. I understand some of the hospitals are actually giving anesthesiologists a readout on the amount of gas they use and the, and its contribution to the uh, carbon footprint. Somehow that misses it for me. Somehow those performance reports should be about individual patient safety and individual patient satisfaction. On one hand, if you can cut the emissions, some like you're saying, okay, well, we're using 20% more gas than we actually need to. So we can, you know, safely drop the gas by 20% without harming patients and patients having the same level of satisfaction. Well, okay, I'm okay with that. Although what's that really going to amount to if we're talking about eliminating inhaled gas anesthesia altogether only accounts for reducing the carbon footprint by 0.1%. It's it's very hard to wrap your head around. And that's why I'm so, you know, in agreement with the position of the Harvard climate scientists who, who made the comments about, hey, focus on me and my surgery and the safety of my surgery, not on, you know, the world problem of carbon gas emissions. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Dr. Cohen, thank you. Thanks, Dave. Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And here is the new King County prosecutor, Lisa Mannion. And I want to ask you, I I know that you've put a big priority on economic crimes. And I'm, I'm especially curious about these organized thieves. Who are these people? Are, are these local people? Is it a cartel? Who are they? I have heard that there are individuals who organize themselves that are systematically preying upon businesses that run fencing operations. And those are the individuals that we're tackling. So it sounds like you've had success in, uh, you know, cutting down on the number of these thefts and the rings out there. But now you want to prioritize, which <laughs> we have a lot to talk about on this topic, gun violence and also sexual assault. So let's start with gun violence as a news anchor. My newscasts have become the shooting roundup. So what are you going to do about that? Well, you know, King County is not um, unique. I mean, we have seen a rise in gun violence in major jurisdictions all across America. And, you know, by forming a gun violence prevention unit, what I'm doing is I'm combining the crime strategists who do the data analysis that track every single gunshot that is fired in King County where someone has been killed physically injured or where property has been damaged. And we are also combining resources so that we can meet with law enforcement and with community partners, because what we want to do is a twofold approach. One, we want to identify the individuals who are creating the most harm in our communities. These are individuals who are shooting guns, who are firing guns, who are recruiting young people to commit gun violence. And we want to prosecute those individuals and hold them accountable. We also know that there are a lot of individuals who are not suspects in crime, have not been charged with crime, who have not yet become victims of crime. But when we listen to our friends and our partners in public health, 
and we look at the data, we also know that individuals who are close to gun violence have an increased percentage of becoming either victims or perpetrators of violence. So how do we partner with both law enforcement and our community to provide the intervention necessary to keep that from happening? So it's a two-pronged approach. So is it the weapon or the person? What do you go after? Well, it is the person that commits the crime. It's not the weapon that commits the crime, but we do have an extreme risk protection order team that works to remove firearms from domestic violence and other dangerous situations. And so in that instance, I mean, both it's it's person based, but we are removing firearms because we know that firearms create great harm. How often does that happen and does it work? It happens every day and it does work. Every day, we actively work and save lives by removing firearms from dangerous situations. Absolutely. It's a multidisciplinary approach. Our domestic violence um, firearm enforcement unit was the first of its kind in the nation um, because extreme risk protection orders are not self-executing. Judges sign off on those. But we have to have skilled law enforcement go and safely remove firearms. And they're really effective. How does that work? How does that work? Does somebody just show up, knock on the door? We've been ordered to take your guns, hand them over. How does that work? Well, there has to be an order, you know, asking that person to um, surrender their firearms. And law enforcement, I will say they are really skilled and they generally get people to voluntarily relinquish their firearms. It's 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 really quite amazing. And I give all of the credit to our multidisciplinary team, but particularly to the law enforcement officers who are really committed to this work and who are really skilled at what they do, who read people really well and recognize that many of these people are in crisis. So, you know, sometimes we remove firearms from individuals because we think they are, are at risk of harming themselves. And law enforcement goes in with a very sensitive approach and they've been very successful. I I couldn't say enough good things about our law enforcement partners. On another matter, drug enforcement, where does that stand now? If somebody is openly using meth or crack or whatever the popular drug is these days uh, on the street, can a cop stop them? I think what you're talking about is drug possession and drug possession is definitely an area that the Washington state legislature is looking at. As you know, our Washington state Supreme Court ruled that uh, drug possession, our drug possession law was unconstitutional. The uh, Washington state legislature made drug possession a misdemeanor crime, but also ruled that law enforcement or prosecutors could not prosecute that crime without showing that there had been two attempts at offering diversion. The challenge was that there was not a database or any kind of infrastructure in place to be able to track that. So all of that is currently on the table with this legislature. But what I will share from the King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office side of things is that what we're focused on is fentanyl. And we work closely with law enforcement and we are definitely being really mindful and prosecuting those who are selling fentanyl. That's another thing that our office has been doing, you know, every single week. When it comes to the gun violence and the drugs and all of that, you know, you hear so much commentary about just how loosey-goosey and how awful it is out there in Seattle and King County and it's not safe and all that. You know, there's a whole rhetoric around, uh, you know, Seattle's drug laws and gun laws. Is it really as bad as people think from your perspective? 
You know, I don't think it's as bad as people think, but I think how people feel is really important because people want to feel safe. Mm -hmm. So I am always curious about what are the things that make people feel unsafe and how can we in the prosecuting attorney's office share information that either clarifies a misunderstanding or reassures the communities that we serve that we are absolutely looking out for their best interest and their safety and we're prosecuting very serious crimes every single day. Is it just me or I think it probably is just me. I mean, I like to go downtown. I go down down like three or four times a week and I just don't like seeing people using drugs on the street. And I know they're probably not a threat to me. I mean, I've walked past drug users all the time and nobody's ever bothered me, but I don't like seeing it. So I don't think anyone likes seeing it. I don't think people like seeing others use drugs because it can be frightening. I think that it also has the impact of making us feel helpless because we know that many who are who are doing drugs are suffering and and being faced with that type of suffering is uncomfortable um how do we offer treatment on demand how do we get individuals who are suffering from substance use disorder off of our streets out of our doorways out of the doorways of businesses and into a place where they are getting safe treatment and we know that our need right now exceeds our capacity um, i'm really encouraged by some of the proposals that are on the table so that we can ensure that more people are getting help but i don't think you're alone i don't think it's just you dave king county prosecutor lisa Mannion. thank you very much thank you so much dave thank you colleen Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. As the countdown continues towards the Super Bowl this Sunday, the Philadelphia Eagles and Kansas City Chiefs are getting their game plan set. And so are refugees from Ukraine. The Ukrainian family tells NBC News it all began when they attended the AFC Championship showdown between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Cincinnati Bengals. We're so excited. <laughs> yeah, it, it was really great. Uh, it was first time for us and uh, it was uh, semi-final. The joy of that experience, a stark contrast from fleeing Ukraine just a few months ago. We were hearing bombs and explosions, and it was very scary. It was hard for me, but uh, I wanted uh, my family to be in safe. The family arrived in the U.S. through a nonprofit called Welcome U.S. The organization introduced them to the Teglins, a family living outside Kansas City who wanted to sponsor them. We have um, daughters that are the same age. We have the same interests. We are at the same place in life, and we felt like they were a great family that we could help support. The Teglins are incredible. They helped provide the family with their first apartment, enrolled their kids in U.S. school, even gifted them a car. I think it's a big chance for our kids um, to see uh, a different world, to see uh, a different continent, and first of all, to be safe. Max uh, went to school. Uh, he was very anxious about it, but now um, he's very excited about it, and every time he gets pizza and burgers at lunch, makes his day. Alice went to school a week after that. Uh, she didn't speak any English beforehand, but now she's able to communicate with the teacher, with her friends, and people around her. I love that he's excited about the school pizza and burgers. Well, now, because the family has just been wrapped in love by the Teglins and this organization, the family's going to Arizona because the Kansas City Chiefs organization found out about them and how much they love their first football game and is surprising the family with tickets to Super Bowl 57. 
Oh, that'll be a wow. great experience. <laughs> Other world experience, I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> Seven forty-eight, and now from the Gene Ursula Show starts at nine. Here's G. Scott and uh, Colleen. Since Abba didn't win, <laughs> and since Chris isn't familiar with any of the artists, you will have to carry this because I have no idea what happened to the Grammys. And it's oh, absolutely. So. Did you watch it all? No. Huh? Oh. You no. didn't watch. You're not catching any of the crosstalk on Twitter this morning. I, I'm I'm just seeing pictures of it on on uh, CBS television. That's really yeah. all I, I know about it. I look. I look forward to listening to the folks that didn't watch it say things like, I'm not, I, I didn't watch it. I, I wouldn't know who those artists are anyway. That would be a perfect example of, yeah, now I know you didn't watch it because actually the Grammys did a really good job yes. of making it inclusive and making sure that even if you're one like me, by the way, who doesn't know the new music. There's a lot of the older music that was there. Um, Willie Nelson walks away with an, with a Grammy. Bonnie Raitt walks away with a Grammy. Brandy Carlisle walks away with a Grammy. Have you guys heard of him? Brandy Carlisle. Well, yeah, Willie Nelson. But Brandy Carlisle, I interviewed her like Bonnie Ray. So, so again, yeah. if you didn't watch the Grammys and you're saying you didn't watch it because I'm not going to know who anybody is. Proves you wrong. No, no, I didn't I watch it they... because of that. I didn't watch it I, in protest or anything. No, no, I, just, I know. I know. I just. I don't watch because I don't care. I don't watch awards. Pop culture is not important though. to me. Well, I don't sure. care. That's fair. Okay. How about, okay, those yeah. of us that do care, we'll talk yeah. about it. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. you thought Trevor Noah was a great host. I, I really wasn't focused on him at all, but I thought he did a great job, too. I, I, My job is to be your eyes, your ears. I'll be floating around this room. Think of me like a Chinese spy balloon. That's what I'm doing right now, <laughs> gathering all the information you want, because this is the room. This is the room where it all goes down. Yeah. I thought he did a good job. I love the way he worked the crowd. I love the way he sat down with the crowd. He didn't try to. So sometimes I think when hosts are trying to do things, which call me old school, I'm glad he was there. As a matter of fact, Billy Crystal is one of my favorite hosts to ever do it. Maybe because I grew up on that. Maybe that's the case. But Billy Crystal made an appearance from when he was the host 35 years ago. I don't like it when the host tries too hard. And I think that last night, Trevor Noah did not uh, try too hard. My favorite part of the Grammys, Colleen, my favorite part. And I don't know if it's going to be talked about at all. My favorite part of the Grammys outside of the 50 year uh, uh, anniversary celebration of hip hop, which was amazing. That was probably number one. But number two was Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift stood up, celebrated and danced the entire night mm-hmm. with a little sum in her cup. You know what I mean? Like that's <laughs> yeah, I think that's who I want to. That's who I want to rock with. She was up rocking Dave with everybody. Yeah, appreciate it. And then the opposite of that was, hey Colleen, why did Ben Affleck even come? I know he looked so bored and miserable the whole. Well, he had to come because J Lo is his wife and she's you know Grammy royalty. I I want to talk about Beyonce getting snubbed because I thought she, her not win Harry Styles winning what was he album of the year over yeah. over Renaissance from Beyonce like how I this. I know and knew that this would be the topic today and all week. And for me, I don't want that to ruin 
my Grammys night, and I also don't want it to ruin the fact that Beyonce has now 33 Grammys, yeah. the most of any entertainer ever in the history. The She's unfortunate part is, Colleen, <laughs> here's the unfortunate part. Last night was the last time we will ever see Jay-Z and or Beyonce live at the Grammys. Why? They ain't coming back. <laughs> not, no, not, not, ooh, not after not getting that album of the year last night. <laughs> Oh, I don't, I don't. she's upset about it too. Yeah, for oh, sure. Well, at least she made she made history being yeah. the most decorated Grammy artist. Now, yeah. the one part that and I love Kim Petras, she be, made history uh becoming the first transgender woman to win an award and Sam Smith being non-binary, he also set right, you know, they won for their song Unholy. The performance itself though, like I hate to sound like one of these people, but I love sharing music with my children. I love but Sometimes I feel like it goes a little too far in the performances. Did you catch theirs with like the devil ears and the cage dancing and the, you know, this and that? Love that song. Love them. Nothing about, you know, them as people. It was just like, I'm not sure. It, it, they're taking it a little too far. I wanted you to talk like for another 25 seconds about it. So I didn't have to really give a response and answer to this. Uh, So when it started, I stood up there. And then after about 10 to 15 seconds in, I asked my wife, hey, you want something from downstairs? (laughs) I know know they're trying to like break boundaries and and show people we exist, too. But it was just like, okay, I really like that song. But this took it a little too far. Uh, Cardi B, did you like what she was wearing? Oh. Oh, the fashion. I almost think the fashion yeah. is better at the Grammys yes. than the Oscars. Yes, yes. Cardi they, they, B, they, was, they was dressed. Yes. Yeah. And Janelle Monet, her dress as well. If mm-hmm. those are two dresses you guys look up, look up those two dresses. Okay? Uh, before we go, Madonna. Oh, yeah. You wanted to talk about Madonna. Uh, just real quick. Very strange. I'm not even talking about how she looks. I'm not talking about looks. I'm talking about her, the way she acts. I think she has done the Fonzarelli from the uh, the Fonz from the uh, Happy Days. She has officially jumped the shark. And she's going to be here two days in July. And I'm like, yo, y'all sure? You sure? She's probably earned the right to be as weird as she wants. Oh, fair. 40 years in the game. Right on. Are you, are you guys are you guys done? I think so. <laughs> There's Thank too you, much G. to talk about. We're going to get it all into a three-minute segment. G. Scott with Ursula at 9 o'clock.